0: Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a horror writer, podcaster, and YouTuber. She is the founder and host of Zobo with the Shotgun, as well as both the founder and editor-in-chief of Ghouls Magazine. Many call her the queen of extreme horror. Beautiful greetings to Zoe Smith.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Chandler. I'm very excited.
0: Me too. Uh, You know, it's... For everybody at home, it's been a little bit of a struggle for us. We have uh, real lives that also kind of get in the way sometimes, but I've just been chomping at the bit the whole time, and I'm, I'm excited that we 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 made it, we're here, we're going to do this. I know, finally, we've got through <laughs> all the rest of life. <laughs> exactly, for, for as much as it would let us uh, get to this point. <laughs> now, before we jump into our discussion, as everybody who listens knows, I like to kick things off with a quote about our topic. Of course, we're still in the realm of beauty right now, so it will be about beauty. This can be from philosophy, it can be from filmmakers, and of course it can be from anywhere on the internet. Uh, Today's quote is uh, a little bit of a doozy. Um, It is as follows. Something beautiful fills the mind, yet invites the search for something beyond itself. Something larger, or something of the same scale with which it needs to be brought into relation. Beauty, according to its critics, causes us to gape and suspend all thought. The complaint is manifestly true, but simultaneously what is beautiful prompts the mind to move chronologically back in the search for precedents and parallels, to move forever, to bring things into relation, and does all this with a kind of urgency as though one's life depended on it. I'll reveal who said that and why I thought it was good for our discussion today, but first, Zoe... Let's talk a bit about you and horror, and yeah, you have so many things that you do, and, and different origins and stuff going on. But uh, let's just go all the way back. And when did this whole journey of horror start for you, and how?
1: Oh, that's a good question. It seems like a long time ago now, <laughs> a long, long time ago. Um, I guess it first started. I mean, when I was younger, I was I was quite obsessed with like. Ghosts and paranormal stuff and and aliens, but um my parents were they were quite sensible they didn't they didn't let me go near horror unless it was like in book form because I think mm-hmm. for them that was that was a bit safer so it wasn't until I was about I think about thirteen that I watched um the Evil Dead. At a Halloween party. My parents used to throw these incredible Halloween parties. Mm-hmm. And yeah, my dad went, Alright, I'm gonna let you watch The Evil Dead because he had um an edition at home which was the Necronomicon, and it was like a little squidgy mm-hmm. case with the with a face on, and I was obsessed with it as a kid, always like, What is this? And yeah, one Halloween he finally went, Alright, I'm gonna let you watch The Evil Dead. And I had just never seen anything like that. It absolutely blew me away. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I was like, what is this? And I think it was from then that I went, oh, be, being scared's quite a an interesting feeling, isn't it? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I want more of that, please. I want more being scared. And uh, yeah, that kind of just kicked it off from there after that i was raiding my parents dvd shelf always down blockbuster on a friday as well picking out whatever looked like the goriest nastiest film on the shelf which um yeah my mum wasn't too impressed with that but but my dad <laughs> my, my dad was fine he was like just don't tell your mum, and you can watch this horrible 18 movie and i was like perfect and yeah
0: it's just spiraled since then that's incredible. What a movie to start with as well. I remember when I saw it, I'd already seen quite a few major you know, horror films, especially of the time when I was at that age. you know. So yeah. Scream, you know, a lot of 90s stuff. And then I eventually picked it up, I want to say, when I was around 18 or 19, and I was just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I kinda, so I can only imagine what it's like to be like, this is what horror is. You know, that's quite a foundation that you have there. Yeah, it was a gr- a great.
1: Do you know what? I actually think *The Evil Dead* is probably like one of the greatest starting horror films to watch because it's kind of. I know it obviously moves a bit more into Splatstick, but that first mm-hmm. film, you know, it's got a bit of everything that you, you want in there. And also, you know, it kind of, I mean, I fell in love with Bruce Campbell as Ash. I was like, is this what all men in horror are like? Because I'm <laughs> all over this. You know, didn't tell my dad that bit, of course. But no. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll watch the other movies if he's in it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great starter film for anyone that wants to like get into horror, I feel.
0: I have to agree. Yeah, I see where you're coming from with that. I I love how it does have just a little bit of everything for for any sensibility. So if something's grating at you, well, by the time you are having enough of it, they move on to the next type of approach just to kind of keep throwing everything at you the entire time. But yeah, I mean, also having a... Not not a full comedy since the first one is trying to take everything a little bit more seriously. I still have something that's a bit more humorous as well as your first big cinematic experience with horror. It's such a cool way to do it. I I don't know if I know anybody else who's had The Evil Dead as their entry point. You know, normally I'm used to hearing things like oh, it's Goosebumps or mm. you know. then again, you said you were reading a lot. Were you reading things like that as well, Fear Street and stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah. Goose Goosebumps was on the shelf, like yeah. that had to be done. But I guess it's it's slightly different. I mean, I I obviously I love horror books now, like obsessed with them. But I don't know, I feel like they're a they're a bit different. There's your own mind and then there's actually seeing it and witnessing it and going, Whoa, I did not really think about it like in this context.
0: Exactly. You know, when they're describing things that you have no sort of basis for. You just kind of fill in the blanks yourself, and you can keep it as safe as you want in your own imagination. Yeah. But if you have a wild imagination, then of course, you know, those books can really (laughs) creep up in there. I've had a few of those with the Goosebumps books that I was like, I get what you're saying. Oh, God. (laughs) Just up all night. Uh, Wow. Really cool. Really cool. Then, okay. So, did you really early on feel that you wanted to get involved in the whole horror? Creation aspect of things, or was this something that, as you got older and got other jobs, you kind of started to see that, oh, this also needs jobs, <laughs> and and you know, well, how did you get into the, the well, all the things that you're doing now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess it kind of, um, I mean, I was always into writing, like I loved writing, mm-hmm. and at school, you know, I loved writing like poetry, uh, short fiction stories. I mean, in school, I once wrote a a very long poem about a girl that was pushed in a well it was quite dark mm. I think my English teacher was like are you are you all right are you trying to tell me something <laughs> um so I always had that big interesting kind of like writing and then I think it was probably when I was about 18 at university. I was like, you know, I wanted to get into journalism and it was at a point where I needed to decide what kind of path to take. And I was really also into um, like investigative journalism Mm -hmm. and war journalism for some unknown there's no relation to anything or it was just a random thing i was like yeah that seems really cool then my parents were like absolutely you're not doing that like no 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 and i was like cool so then i looked at investigative journalism they were like don't think it's your thing went down that path i was like no that's absolutely not my thing and then um and then i actually had uh, as part of my course, we had some film studies, and I had this in- really inspiring a French teacher. You know, I, f- I found him so eloquent in the way that he spoke about film, and, and we were discussing *Metropolis*. And it's not a horror mm. film, but I just loved the theories around it. You know, how much uh, meaning and discussion you could have around one one film, one piece of media, and I was like wow this is you know that kind of unlocked for me like what I wanted to write about I was like I want to write about film and I think I think my first uh film review that I wrote when I set up a blog was actually like a spider-man film which if if you know me I'm not into that kind of thing but at the time (laughs) I was like sorry the cinema wrote about that and then um and then I watched cannibal
0: holocaust oh well that's a jump
1: yeah yeah i (laughs) i was doing it as part of my university course i wanted to do an article on found footage films Mm. uh then i kind of was like oh found footage horror watch the blair witch project then i stumbled across cannibal holocaust and that was the film for me where one i kind of went oh extreme horror now that's i'm loving whatever this horribleness is and then, yes, I was. I just realized that I had so much to talk about horror in comparison to any other kind of films. And from there, I was like, okay, set up a blog, start writing about it, see how you feel. And it was like a life-changing moment. I was like, why do I have so much to say about people getting murdered? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, if you wanted to do investigative journalism as well, you know, that is a kind of a gateway I suppose you have the interest in seeing the actual details of horrible events and in this case they're fictional events, but because they're fictional and you had such a good teacher, you're also taught of what that actually says about the real world. So, I can see where the the connection comes from and it's no surprise then that Cannibal Holocaust ended up being <laughs> kind of the the catalyst there, investigative journalism meets horror.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost kind of the perfect film, really, isn't it? And I think that's why I just went, ah, but yeah, I mean, it 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 blew me away. I, did, I mean, of course, I'd never seen anything quite like Cannibal Holocaust at that time.
0: I think even now, most people probably haven't seen anything quite like Cannibal Holocaust, even when you have so many movies that try to emulate it. It just, that movie has a very specific feel to it
1: oh absolutely i showed it to um i showed it to my friend who's italian and they'd never heard of it at all and we watched it and they were like what the fuck did you just show me and i was like (laughs) did you like it though they were like there are no words right now to describe (laughs) what i think about that movie yeah i did feel a bit mean i was like maybe that wasn't what you should show to a friend who doesn't know anything about horror. Um, it's not its not an easy, it's not a gentle film to start with.
0: <laughs> no, it isn't. But do you feel that that happens more often? That you, you know, being, you know, having the reputation of being the queen of extreme horror, uh, I can imagine that a lot of your back catalogue that you're just raring to talk to people with is more into that realm of things so for the hardened horror fan do you have it very often that you're like oh this is something that's very casual for you to watch and then they come back to you just looking completely just like the whirlwind had hit them
1: oh uh, all, all the time all the time <laughs> i think for me i forget that it's even for horror fans that you know extreme horror is as it as the title suggests it's extreme like it's not yes. it's not easy viewing and you know even things that are maybe not as extreme but equally quite dark and you know they're i like to call them like soul destroying films Mm -hmm. even some of them that maybe not horror i might suggest it being like yeah it's a really good movie and people come back and they're like that is just not okay to be (laughs) recommending so (laughs) now i now i try to not recommend too much i'm like unless i give like a you know like a, a warning i'm like But yeah, I do let people come over my house and and watch horrific movies, which is, it's quite hilarious as a film night (laughs) because some people just get up and leave and I'm like, (laughs) job done.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask, yeah, do you often feel that people think that you're pranking them? I can imagine if you bring them into your house, partially you are, you know, it's like, welcome (laughs) to my house. You know what you got yourselves into. I don't really hide it. But uh, has anybody responded in a way of like, hey, Come on, Zoe. Like, what? What are you doing?
1: There was, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, my dad did say to me over Christmas. He said that he is worried that I've got genuine um, problems. Oh, <laughs> he was like, "It's not okay to be watching that." I was like, "You're the one that got me into horror." Right. Um, but I did have a, a hilarious. I mean, one night that we were at a, a friend's house and watching the Poughkeepsie tapes, and Lovely. another. F- Right. And another friend popped over to drop over like a birthday present or something for my friend. And he was like, oh, I'll stay for a bit, you know, have a beer and I'll watch the movie with you. Honestly, 20 minutes in, he just got up. He was like green. He turned around and he went, who the fuck chose this movie I put my hand up and I have not spoken to him since. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, don't don't recommend the Pikepsku set tapes anymore to anyone.
0: <laughs> I think that's a very wise decision. <laughs> I, I've, everything I've ever heard from people who see it for the first time, they're never ready. Even people who think that they're ready, that movie is so designed to be this genuine snuff film that yeah yeah it I remember the first time I saw it too. I remember I hunted it down. It had that <laughs> mystique. Uh, it was because it around the time that it was released. yeah, it wasn't really released. You know, it was just in the f- festival circuit. so you you knew there was a screener somewhere and you're trying to find it. and just it kind of had that video nasty thing to it. I loved that we were still in that era that the internet kind of provided that with these really terrible. Sort, not proper streaming, but you know that kind of like half-ass streaming stuff, where you had to keep typing in a code and you get five minutes at a time <laughs> while you'd yep. watch it. Somehow, it made it even more disturbing for me that I had to keep actively telling the computer that I want to do this while I was watching <laughs> this movie. <laughs> but a lot of, do you
1: know what? There's quite a few um, extreme films that even even now, like you have to go to a really put in a lot of effort to find movies like that Mm -hmm. i think years ago uh, i had an online friend and they suggested tumbling dollar flesh to me and i had to watch it on a a very 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 seedy japanese porn site and it's yeah and i was like i got about halfway through it and i was like oh my god is this a movie or am i Doing something illegal, like I, I got, and I think that adds to it, especially with the extreme stuff, because you do sit there and you go, like you said, you know, you're kind of questioning. You're like, should I be doing this if it's not wanted to be viewed by anyone? (laughs)
0: Well, and as a horror fan, I guess we're just used to that being the very existence of our fandom that we talk about something even as mild as say, hey, I saw the new. Nightmare on Elm Street recently, and they're like, well, those movies. So (laughs) you're already kind of boxed in into this whole, like, oh, you're a blood fiend. You're some weird Mm. sadist, sadomasochist person. And I mean, I guess guilty as charged, but that's not the point. Point being (laughs) that not everybody's that way, and you're always kind of ostracized and pushed aside because I guess, you know, maybe I don't feel like talking about The Notebook right now. I'd rather talk about Hereditary. (laughs) And then if you get into the extreme stuff, yeah, then they just look at you like... You're gonna make this, aren't you? You're gonna you're gonna do this for real until it's all fiction.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. It's certainly something that I I wait a while to tell people my film taste. Uh, I've got some, right. you know, I started a new job about a year ago, and and uh, they were asking about my necromantic tattoo, and I was like, <laughs> well, you know, I was like, um, so it's about this movie, and you know, after a few beers, they got me talking about it fully. And they were all like a little bit scared, but also I find there's like um, a, a, an incredible fascination from people mm-hmm. that don't kind of get into it. And even, you know, with horror in general, I think a lot of people that aren't into horror or even extreme, they, they want to know, you know, they're like, well, what's the mo- what happens in the movie? And they probably never watch it but i do find other people kind of outsider are really it's like a morbid curiosity isn't it that they want to mm-hmm. they want to know about your horror viewing habits and then you tell them they go oh god no that's that's horrible
0: <laughs> yeah it, it 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 titillates right it's almost like yeah. you you see a lot of like old 90s series and stuff where you have very conservative households and maybe their neighbors next door are a little more like rock and roll or or hippie people (laughs) and they're just watching porn like on cinemax (laughs) or something and then they're like so what was on it and so you have like the description of what they experienced and and saw but they're like wow that sounds very racy i I don't think i could ever allow my household to have that but they're very happy they heard about it
1: yeah yeah it's exactly (laughs) the same thing
0: (laughs) that's wonderful And so, yeah, you said you turned into your blog, which is Zobo with a Shotgun, which is also the name of your YouTube channel, correct? Yes, it is. So what is your YouTube channel mostly dedicated to? What sort of content would people expect?
1: So on there, I actually focus on books. Ah. So my other, I mean, I love films, but um, I've always been a, a huge book nerd, like, obsessed with with reading um, and to be honest if, if I had to choose I'd probably choose books over film okay which is maybe a bit controversial but there's something I find just really you know amazing about the way a book can be written and how you kind of get into it so over on my um, YouTube channel I of course look at very very disturbing books so it's almost like extreme films but extreme books. So looking at books like um, Marquis de 120 Days of Sodom. Ah. So yeah, the, the nasty side of the book world, which um, I have found actually destroys my mind far worse than any of the movies I've
0: seen. I understand that S- literature is so good at tapping mm. into the human condition. Yeah, Words are often more powerful than images because at least with images we can detach ourselves from what the people are actually experiencing or going through. Sorry, everybody. My cat has decided that this uh, conversation is very shitty, so she's deciding to use the litter box right now. Um, <laughs> so enjoy this, everyone. We're not going to edit that out. This is going to be a wonderful little... ASMR in the background of me talking. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I I see why that could affect you so much more. I think it's really cool that you're covering that. I I don't think it's a controversial take to prefer something. That's your taste, right? And what you get out of it. I think the more we intersect interests and find where the commonalities are, the more interesting the genre becomes. So, yeah, more horror literature people. You know, If you're listening and you're big on horror literature and you think you could be on here... You can. I just, just don't send me a novel. I have, I'm a slow reader. So. (laughs) Okay. Then the last thing I want to talk about before we get into our film today, which is a very interesting and empowering thing. I'm really excited to talk about it is Ghoul's Magazine. So I could tell people what the concept is, but I think you are the best person to describe this. So please, could you just describe in your own words, what is the whole purpose and ethos of Ghouls Magazine? What's it all about? That is a very good question. Um, yeah, so Ghouls Magazine
1: is basically an online horror magazine, all written from the female perspective. However, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people immediately kind of associate that with just women, um, but we have a lot of non-binary writers as well, and also trans writers too. So it's almost kind of taking the female experience and perspective, whether that's you know a current perspective or something that um, has been a previous perspective. So, for instance, you know we've got a couple of non-binary writers who are mothers. Um, But obviously, they they are non-binary now, so they bring a very unique perspective. And I just wanted Mm. to create a place where we could kind of bring those different perspectives that I felt didn't necessarily have um, the biggest kind of voice in the community because there wasn't anywhere to go and really raise those voices up. And I found, you know, through Ghouls Magazine, we've, we've obviously got, I mean, a ridiculously talented team of writers and i think it just brings such a fresh unique look at the horror genre and so many different ways at looking at you know different films even some of the same films will look at from different perspectives and you just really get to understand what that horror film means to someone else um and so yeah it's it's that's kind of what Ghoul's Magazine is and I think um, I'm just, I, I mean, I feel very lucky that I get to read all of the articles because <laughs> it's, you know, it's so thoughtful and insightful and they're perspectives that I don't feel like I was necessarily hearing from much previously and, you know, having worked, I guess, you know, kind of in the horror industry for the last. too many years to to mention (laughs) it was just something you know i felt was was really lacking in that space and it's certainly becoming more prevalent now and i just think you know if we can hear from more marginalized voices and you know whether that's through ghouls magazine or lots of other amazing outlets that that are doing you know similar things very very well and even better then let's go for it like i don't just want to hear from you know men anymore which when i was when i was getting into the the industry that's all it was so Uh that's kind of how ghouls came around
0: it's been wonderful to watch it grow as well i was really excited when i saw the whole startup of ghouls and the announcements for it and yeah you know it's it's, so for everybody listening of course it's one thing to hear the the founder talking about how amazing their whole staff are, but really the, the wide spectrum of talents you have on this website, the different perspectives from different regions, uh, different races, different ages, different uh, gender identities, sexual identities. It's, it's quite amazing how diverse of a of, of list of voices that you've managed to curate for this website. And yeah, I love seeing it grow, and it looks like you have kind of carved out a nice little space for yourself in the whole horror digital magazine sphere. Um do you have any exciting plans that you can kind of report on here or if there's uh, anything you're cooking up? We do.
1: We've actually um, just I'm I'm a bit of a organization planner. Uh, Obsessor, like so <laughs> we've actually just finished planning um for the entirety of twenty twenty two Wow, <laughs> which um we've got some really exciting themes and ideas coming up over the next few months, so we haven't been doing um lots of our events for a little while just because we've been super super busy, lots of personal things going up. But in January, we are going to be doing a discussion at the end of the month all about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, looking at her as a bit of a teen idol and how, you know, kind of those some of those more teen-focused horrors really built up the horror world for people. And I like Buffy was you know kind of a big turning point in my life so I'm really looking forward to that and then February we're going to be focusing a lot on final girls Rebecca McCallum who I know you've had on the pod and is our fantastic assistant editor um, at Ghouls she's come up with an awesome campaign where we're going to be doing uh, basically like a series of, of love letters to women in horror that have really inspired us um, over the years, to tie in with kind of Valentine's um, and our Final Girls theme, and then we're going to also be hosting um, another discussion about Final Girls of Horror, which Rebecca will be chairing, which is super Ooh. excited for. Um, and then in March, we are—it's actually going to be about our, our year birthday around about then. So we're right. we're looking at doing a, a big day. Of events which is is still tbc but we've got some super cool ideas in there which is you know we want to be talking things about like trans representation in horror um sexual violence on screen horror literature so yeah it's going to be a a big day so we've got loads coming up this year and i'd hopefully as well maybe some in-person things but that's, that's COVID-dependent and, and a bit TBC at the moment, but yeah,
0: lots and lots coming up. Oh, that's incredible. So many exciting things. I'm really looking forward to those letters that you mentioned. I love that idea a lot. And seriously, everyone, you don't know, if you haven't been to a Ghouls Magazine event or any event that's always been able to to chair you don't know what you're missing out on these are great <laughs> symposiums they're they're very well structured you get some of the best minds to do some of the most professional work and then you have a lot of fun shit-talking at the end, which is also really, really nice.
1: <laughs> that's that's my favorite bit. Grab a glass of wine, and then we just shit-talk at the end.
0: <laughs> and I love it. It's a really nice, inclusive space. So although the magazine is geared towards female voices, voices of women, trans representation, it doesn't mean that there's any exclusion for participation from anybody who doesn't you know, identify in, in that sphere so please you know engage support all the voices that are on the website and go to these events when they come out because even though we are stuck in the digital zoom era i can tell you that these are very well curated events so you will not be disappointed they're not just boring sitting around on like a kind of jeopardy jeopardy board of people (laughs) so yeah absolutely excited and the first thing that you were talking about uh, when you were talking about buffy and, and high school and stuff i think That's very fitting, because I think it actually is a great segue to the film we're going to be talking about today. And uh, as is a nice little tradition that I have, I would love for the guest to announce it. So please, what movie will we discuss today?
1: Today, we are going to be talking about a favorite of mine, which is none other than Excision.
0: Yes, Excision. One of my absolute favorites, one I managed to see at a right Time as well. I think I was around 19 when it came out or so. And no, nah, a little older, but still, I just, still close enough to high school that I kind of got it. And yeah, it was so nice to watch it yet again and be able to talk about it. So before we jump into it, I want to give everybody a brief synopsis from IMDb. I like to see if these things hold up to our understanding and knowledge of the film. And just, you know, that way, if you think it's interesting, please go check it out. I mean, whether you find the Synopsis, interesting or not, trust me, you should check this one out. But, here we go. A disturbed, delusional high school student with aspirations of a career in medicine goes to extremes to earn their approval of her controlling mother. Short and sweet is what IMDb chose for the synopsis. And I appreciate that, because this movie does have quite a bit <laughs> hidden underneath the layers. But what do you think about that synopsis? Do you think it's fitting? I'm...
1: <laughs> do you know what I like you said I think it's a film that's got many many layers to it I don't think that synopsis quite does it justice and I think <laughs> a lot of people might might go yeah that doesn't sound too bad and then pop on excision and go mm, okay this is slightly different than, than what IMDB told yeah. me it was.
0: It's slightly different, yes. Uh, and I understand why they wouldn't get into all the nitty gritty because some of those mm. details are what makes the movie such a powerhouse to watch because you're just sitting there thinking that you're watching one thing and as it goes, you just kind of, you know, the whole way through you know <laughs> how this is probably going to end and you're just thinking there is no way this is going to happen. There's no way this movie oh shit yeah it just oh shit the whole way through like stop oh no uh, i love the the tension and the kind of easy breezy pace this movie has as well
1: yeah it's got really good pacing to it actually and i think um it's a film that i feel like every time i've watched it it seems to have so much depth to it but it also goes really quickly as mm-hmm. well which which i quite like because do you feel with the subject matter, which I'm sure we're going to get into a little bit more in a minute, oh, yes. but do you feel like with the subject matter, it could potentially feel quite like a drag to watch, but it doesn't.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I Cause I was watching it again today and I was shocked when it was over and I was like, Oh, I was I in my memory. I always remember it dragging mm. and it never does. Every time I watch it, it's just the easiest movie to sit down and watch. Not not the easiest to digest, but <laughs> just, it never bores. It never lingers too long. And I think it's because it has a lot going on and it decides to not make anything dragged out to really emphasize anything specific. You just kind of have to go along with Pauline's journey. And also her being a teenager, I think that's just really indicative to the mindset of a teenager of boom, 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 boom. Do this, do this now and figure this out. Now I'm focused on this. Now this is bothering me. Now now this is on my mind. And it's, yeah, it's not too frantic, but it also isn't this, uh, you know, it almost feels like American beauty, but it. American beauty drags and this doesn't. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think it's I think the way that they splice the film up between so there's lots of, you know, dream sequences mm-hmm. in excision. I think because they kind of splice up the the real life with the dream sequences fairly frequently, I think it kind of keeps that pace. Like you said, it's it's not quite frantic. It's a little bit erratic in places but it works like it really works for the subject matter and to understand Pauline and and the way that her mind works like it does feel like you're kind of in her mind and you know what it's like being a teenager you are a bit here there and everywhere and a bit like well I don't know what's going on like you have not got your shit
0: together as a teenager (laughs) and Pauline is certainly like that as well probably more so than most people i love that the (laughs) most defining quality about her is she screams i have my shit together it's okay and everything she does is to the contrary of this
1: (laughs) and i think it's a perfect example of you know i remember me when i was a and it's probably one of the reasons i i love this film so much when i was a teenage girl you know thinking that i knew everything in the world you know Uh i think as a teenager you you know your parents tell you something you're like i know best i am smart i'm a teenager now like i as she says i've got my shit together like i know mm. everything and you don't like you are a mess as a teen. you've got no idea what is going on in the world so i think it's i think it's kind of like the perfect quote and i mean actually you know i'm uh i'm much much older than a, a teenager now but i i i feel like i can still use that quote and then go yeah no i i certainly don't have my shit together <laughs>
0: No, it's great to put on the mirror, isn't it? Just to frame Yeah, it. I have my shit together, and you look at it and just frown at yourself and walk out. <laughs> yeah, I don't, just I don't cry. Need that. <laughs> yeah, I don't need this toxic optimism in my life. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so when I approached you, I can imagine where you're going to go with this, but I'm curious because everybody has surprised me so far. Uh, when I approached you to be on the podcast, and I asked you to choose a film based on the concept of beauty, Excision was a very, very quick response from you. And mm. I was very excited to hear it because it's one of my favorite movies ever. But what about it screamed beauty to you?
1: I guess there's kind of of two reasons for me. I think there's a very obvious reason in terms of the way Pauline is is portrayed looks-wise in the movie so we see her throughout the movie and in real life she's she's spotty her hair's messy she's quite dirty she doesn't she doesn't embody beauty as a you know no. as a societal norm of what is beauty she she's a bit you know she's a bit dirty she, she doesn't seem to care too much however in her dream sequences she's you know absolutely stunning she's got you know makeup on she looks like a catwalk model absolutely phenomenal looking so you've got these very opposing um sides to to beauty and what is supposedly you know beauty but i think for me the the beauty element comes through it through um you know i i believe that beauty is all about personality um, um, and through us being who we were supposed to be and our, mm. you know, our true kind of authentic selves. And I feel, you know, when Pauline begins to explore that, that darker, disturbed side of herself that's where her beauty to her and to the people around her in some sense begins to shine and i think for me you know excision is a film all about discovering regardless of how completely fucked up it might be (laughs) discovering your inner true beauty which is just about discovering who you truly are so that's kind of where i come at it from in a very disturbed way of course (laughs)
0: Well, there's no other way when it comes to excision, because this is a very disturbed film, and especially in regards to that personal development story. I I really appreciate that take on it. Yeah, I, I agree with you as well. I think that the most beautiful thing about Pauline is the fact that she is so pure in who she is. She is not seem to really care about living up to anybody else's expectations she has it once or twice you know she's a teenager so she still has these insecurities that she's trying to pretend that she doesn't have but you have once or twice that the girls you know the mean girls at school will say something to her and she's trying to not be affected by it but then the next (laughs) thing she does she goes home and she just looks like i think i might want to get some plastic surgery Get rid of this uh, Audi that I have for my belly button, things like this. And her sister's like, it's okay, boys don't care about that. She's like, I don't live in a world where boys are the only thing that matters. I'm doing this for myself, okay? But I love how her sister's like, sure. <laughs> sure, you're doing it for you, okay. Uh, but like you were saying, that strong contrast between the two, you know, the casting we mm. have here with Anna Lynn McCord, her being a model – And an actress is such a great way to explore this because I was shocked when I found out, because back in like 2012 when the movie came out, I, I was shocked to discover that she's the same person in all of the dreams because they did such a good job with teenaging her up, basically. The greasy hair, the posture, the zits, the lack of makeup, everything. You can see it still. you know She does have all the features of a very professional model. But... I liked that they showed far more about what she's doing than how she appears. It's addressed because people love to talk about that, especially with teenage girls. But I love that the movie didn't dwell on that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, and I think that's one of the things about excision that is, you know, so different to other movies. I think the casting is, is so interesting in the aspect that they, they, you know, usually, and I, you see it time time again in horror is, of course, they cast the most beautiful woman in the world model to be at the front stage and center. And the, But, you know, they put her in the skimpiest top, the smallest mm-hmm. clothes, they use sex to sell the movie, which, you know, of course, it works. You know, I, I watch a Megan Fox film, you know, till death, because I went, Megan Fox, probably naked in blood. I'm going to watch that. Like, absolutely, I'm going to watch that. Whereas I think, you know, with Excision, it's a really interesting choice to take an actual model, you know, and go, actually, for the majority of the film, you're going to look, you know, not particularly nice. And I feel like you know, her as an actress, that was clearly uh quite a an informed decision to make. You know, it's it's almost quite a bold statement against, you know, beauty and the standards of beauty. So I was very impressed. And like you said as well, I think if you don't know it's the same actress, like you you can't even tell. Like it feels worlds apart, but I do feel it has, you know, such a strong message around our ideal you know our ideals around beauty and and what beauty is
0: supposed to be yes and it also does a great job of showing how both in high school or around high schoolers how beauty is used kind of like a weapon against people Mm. so these standards are constantly thrown at pauline in a way that i think even if you didn't struggle with you have to be beautiful anybody can relate to the feeling of you have to be normal. You have to yeah. be what we want you to be. And in Pauline's case, it's extra. There's so many different <laughs> layers to it because for one, she is really disturbed. There, She has <laughs> a lot of psychological issues that unfortunately nobody is taking the time to actually do anything about. And she says so to everyone like, Oh yes, <laughs> yeah, I have problems, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> But then, you know, her mom's pushing cotillion on her, so she'll be a dainty little girl and know how to, you know, court other, you know, court men and, and, and be gentle at a wedding and things. And then you have the girls at school who just, you know, call her all kinds of horrible names just because she's, well, oddly assertive, basically. You know, she just thinks for herself, and it seems to disturb everybody around her more than her actual disturbing behavior. So... That dissection, which I think is a fitting word for this film, (laughs) is fascinating to me. I know other movies do this and have done this before, but there were so many great approaches to this that I think it makes it such a special movie.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's like they focus so much on the behavior you know of of Pauline and and in in a way you could almost say that you know the way Pauline acts is, is actually kind of more adult than any of her peers and even her mother, you know, her mother's so obsessed with her being this, you know, womanly, like you said, dainty, you know, very eloquent kind of person. And and Pauline's she's quite self-assured about who she is and what she what she likes. And you know, maybe it's certainly not to everyone's taste, but I think that aspect of of behavior is a really interesting concept because I think, you know, it, it, one of the reasons I really connect with this film is you know whenever I was I was always a tomboy growing up mm. and I swear like a sailor and I'm, I'm not I'm not a girly girl not at all I do like some you know I'll wear a nice dress in summer but I remember you know people like family members when I was young always going oh why don't you wear a pretty dress instead of you know like jeans and a t-shirt or why don't you do this with your hair or a little bit of lipstick and and you know I was like I don't want to do that and you know my Like family were always saying, oh, you swear too much. You shouldn't do this. And I think, you know, with Pauline, the the other girls, her mother, kind of everyone pushes a certain behavior on her. And, you know, they expect that she's going to be a virgin and she's not going to like sex. But she's kind of going, no, it's all right. I can just be who... I want to be and I think you know you use the word empowering earlier and it is like it's so empowering for her to just go no fuck that like I like what I like and that's me <laughs> you take it or leave it even if maybe it does overstep the boundaries now and again <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, just just a few steps out of the boundaries I'd say uh, <laughs> yeah that I do appreciate yeah the unabashed love of one's own Desires, basically. Mm. And like I said, she has this strong assertive demeanor to her that everybody wants to control her because of it. They want her to stop doing shit for herself. And I love how she's like, I'm going to go to the girl that I hate, find her boyfriend, and he's (laughs) going to take my virginity. It's
1: honestly, that that for me (laughs) is like the pinnacle, I'm like, yeah, why didn't I do that in high school? There was plenty of girls that um, that would have been a a fun one to do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just to get back at people, something like that would have been absolutely amazing. But that level of gumption for somebody to have I like that the movie's also trying to tell you like these are also red flags, by the way. That it's great if somebody is very empowered and, and you know does things for themselves, but if it's really like plowing through everybody like a bulldozer, then you know check to see what's actually going on, what's really at the heart of all of this, because she pretty much explains everything to everyone. She's not a liar at all. She's no. not shy at all. And Everybody's just like, Ugh, you're weird. I don't understand you. Uh. And like, what's there to understand? She told you exactly what's on her mind. She's dissecting animals. She's looking at her blood for STDs. She's, you know, doing all kinds of stuff that you should be genuinely concerned about because she's acting out, <laughs> but you're <laughs> not, you're just going, Ugh, that girl <laughs> the whole way through. Uh, Pauline is such an interesting kind of a role model of a character because it's, You have that unfortunate part where she is just so capable of horrible, horrible things. And she means so well, I'd say, for the most part. She's so defensive of her family. She's so self-empowering the whole way through. She's not going to let anybody keep her down. But it's an interesting little dichotomy that's been created here in this film of like, well, well, you got to pick and choose what you admire about Pauline.
1: Yeah, and I think think that's why she's... Like you said, she's such a a layered uh, character, you know, so much dimension to her and, you know, so so well written and fleshed out and I think you know in horror you've it's almost like you're either good or bad aren't you mm-hmm. and if you think about blood or you know as as pauline does having sex with men and and decapitating them <laughs> during <laughs> during the act you're immediately a, a horrific person you know there's there's no kind of other category that a person like that could fit into whereas as as you said you know pauline she she has good intentions she's not she's not a morally awful person she's not actually a horrible person to anyone she's actually you know she she adores her sister to pieces and you know as we go through the film we see that m- most of the things she's doing or thinking about you know a lot of it actually is is about her trying to you know save her sister who is who is dying and I think actually it's an interesting way to look at someone that does have these, you know, really messed up thoughts and desires, but actually is essentially a really good, wholesome person. They just, you know, have also got a bit of a dark side. So it's kind of, you know, you wouldn't put her on a villain list. You no. maybe wouldn't put her on a, you know, like a final girl list. But she, she kind of sits almost in between but it's someone that you go well she's she's still quite nice you know she's not Mm -hmm.
0: she's not mean she's not horrible and she's just a very flawed protagonist i suppose is a great way to look at her also this movie doesn't sit in that box where you have a final girl or a villain and i like that a lot i love that in horror where there's no clear evil it's just the evils of society pushing somebody who is a potential threat to themselves and to others into being who they are afraid they're going to become
1: yeah and like you said you know it's not it's not like she doesn't she mentions it to everyone she's very aware that there's something probably not quite right with her and yet everyone is so concerned with her you know being this kind of you know beautiful Woman that she needs to be and, you know, uh-huh. speak and wear her little dainty dress that they completely miss. Um, you know, the fact that she's, she's clearly got, you know, mental health problems. And I think, you know, the film does a good job at actually portraying society's obsession with beauty and perhaps our ignorance towards things like mental health and, and the fact that actually sometimes people do things because, like you said they're pushed to do them and they have cried out for help and it's just been completely ignored. So I think the film does a really good job at, you know, portraying those aspects.
0: And I also appreciate the setting that it shows for this because it's very Mm. specific. It's this really waspy suburban environment that is very superficial and is always focused on how do your neighbours perceive you and you're, I need to project onto my children the version of myself that needed to exist to be a good daughter or husband or whatever. When and you see it a lot with her dad, that he's a pretty good dad. He's a little absent-minded because yeah. he's just stressed out from work and has the most horrible marriage ever. But apart from that, when he's when he's there, basically mentally, he just I love whenever <laughs> whenever her mom's like, "Come on, Bob." And he's like, huh? And he listens. And then he's like, oh, actually, Pauline, I think that's really good. It's really <laughs> that'll benefit your mental health. And I think that's a great idea. You can get a job. And she's like, God damn it, Bob. Like, <laughs> uh, because he's trying to support his children and not tell them how to be a person
1: yeah and I think that's you know I I love Bob in this like bless him I'm like (laughs) you know I was like oh I just want to give him a little hug and be like it's all right Bob you know (laughs) but I think again you know a really interesting choice because I think in so many movies um and not just necessarily horror I think you know it's it's generally kind of like tv and movies I think it's so easy to portray dads as the ones that are maybe not as involved in their children's life and mm-hmm. um, potentially not really, you know, putting their kids first. And you've usually you see the mum as the one that's involved in, you know, doing the good things and is kind of that goody two shoes and is, you know, the perfect parent, the mother is. Whereas I think in excision is as you said you know it's complete opposite bob's a good he's a good dad he's a nice dad like he does nothing wrong and i think that's an interesting way to kind of you know propose it i think um i think the film does a lot of kind of flipping typical tropes of people and their roles on its head and yeah bob is bob is lovely and and the mother's i mean she's the thing is, what I find interesting is she's obviously, you know, prim and proper and, you know, like you said, thinking about what the neighbors think of her. But essentially, when you look at her character and behavior, you you would kind of categorize her as as an ugly person. Like her personality is is pretty horrific and mm-hmm. ugly. So it's almost, you know, Pauline might be coming across as this, dirty grimy but her morals all lie in the right place whereas you know her mother's the complete opposite very prim proper looks beautiful you know i'm sure wouldn't have a hair out of place on her head but you know her personality is quite ugly in the way she portrays
0: herself she's quite monstrous as a figure Mm. but she's still a mom i love that this movie as we already touched upon you mentioned that there's no clear villain yeah. I like that. There are other movies to, uh, very similar to this. If you look at things like "We Need to Talk About Kevin," that's another a... fave. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that one's a very dark, brooding mm. picture that is showing how abusive parenting and postpartum depression can really contribute to not seeing the dangers of a child with mental illness, and. It shows it in such a bleak way that it's just trying to make you feel like all of the things that the mother's feeling through her depression and how she views her child, you're just seeing it. So you see this monstrous evil thing that does eventually end up killing a bunch of people. I liked how in this movie they chose not only just a different tone, but a different approach because they're not really... They're not looking down or talking down to anybody in the film. They're not blaming anybody other than, you know, Pauline has to accept the responsibility for her own actions. They, they literally say that to her when she has the fight in high school. Yeah. But, you know, that's pretty much the gist of it at the end of the film. And we're going to get into spoilers now. I, I don't necessarily like to build up to them. So for anybody who's <laughs> like, okay, well, it's been nice. Well, you know, go watch it. Come back. Uh, if you've seen the movie, stay with us. Because I want to get into the ending of the film to make my point. Uh, when she is done with the surgery with Grace... Yeah. That's where she isn't really taking any responsibility for her actions. She's too focused and selfish on her being good at this thing and living her dream that's been suppressed this whole time. And I love that at that moment, normally you would have this movie, have the mother go through this. Oh, what have I done? Oh, God, you're a monster. I'm a monster. All that. And no, she just hugs her daughter just to kind of teach and let Pauline really understand what just happened. She's she's grieving and she knows you can see it in her face. Tracy Lords performs immaculately, but I like that she just chose to do the motherly thing and embrace the daughter that she still has, even though she's kind of hating her right now Uh, to separate yourself as an individual, you know, as a parent to one kid, but also still be a parent to the person who has hurt your child. I can't even fathom how that must the complexities of that, you know? And I love that that's what they chose to do for the ending of the film. So she's she's been a monster this whole time, but she does love her daughters. So she thought she was doing it out of love, and she just completely fucked it all up.
1: Yeah, it's almost like she... I mean, I, I, I adore the ending of this film. I feel like it ends on such a powerful note of just, you know different kinds of acceptance and like you said you know motherhood daughterhood the complications of of relationship between mm. being a parent having parents it's so complex but i just adore that final embrace and it's it's almost kind of It it kind of goes against, you know, like what you would typically see in a horror film. Like I think when you see it, any other horror film, it would be like you said, you know, the mum's screaming or she's, you know, she grabs a knife and she'd kill Pauline to get, you know, vengeance for grace. But it's the opposite. It's, I think, you know, it's a great, portrayal of of like humanity and how these awful things happen and you know i'm so glad you also brought up like we need to talk about kevin because very similar you know that's about a a mother who had her child commit something awful and while slightly different like you said in tone and the approach she also you know in some ways loves her son and still kind Hmm. of sees him and is there supportive, even though he's done, you know, one of the most horrific things. And it's exactly the same in excision. It's like it doesn't really matter what your child does, you you're still their parent and you will always kind of have some kind of love for them and yeah that the ending of Excision is, is perfect I'm so glad they did not go down the route of some kind of you know crazy battle out between Pauline and, and the <laughs> no mother because I, I think a lot of films would have gone that route like would have gone yeah let's make it you know some kind of like Michael Bay explosion <laughs> of, of of fight sequences but it feels very human the ending
0: I also feel that what makes the ending so special is not only that they drifted away from that because you're right a lot of mainstream big budget studio films would have been like we we need to keep this from being too boring and we haven't had enough horror throughout the entirety of the film so the ending has to be like this saw chamber that she's created mm. for for grace and stuff. <laughs> And instead, it's just a shitty garage with bad lighting. They get the tone (laughs) a little bit there because, like, this is the horror sequence, basically. But I love that even other indie films that would have tried to have done the same type of ending would have failed to add just that one little detail that shows the artistry and display in this one, or at least the point that's being made in this film. Because I would imagine they if they wanted to go the more subtle route and just have you be like, Oh my God, they would have had the, you know, mom opens the door. They look at each other. Pauline says her things. Mom screams. Pauline looks confused. Blackout. That would have been probably, but because it's all about Pauline being like, Oh, you can just imagine what it was like for her to realize what was happening. Instead. I love that. They had that one extra thing where it kind of mirrors a scene earlier in the film when they're standing face to face and Pauline, just says something snide to her. Like, can I go or something? And she slaps her in the mouth. So we're expecting her mom to not handle this very well. And we're like, here we go. Here's the big blow off. And she just hugs her that hug. I just think is such like it, it makes my tear ducts just get active very quickly. Cause I'm just like, Oh, what a real thing for a parent to do. Actually a good parent who good parents can make horrible decisions and do horrible things because they're being protective and they Mm. don't know what they're doing and possibly even, you know, working out their own traumas and thinking that they're doing the right thing because they're doing it differently than their parents did. But that's not always the way, right? Just, just because you're doing something different than somebody else doesn't mean you're actually fixing any of the problems that they (laughs) committed. You're not focused on the right stuff. And in this case, I just think that one little, the fact that they waited just like 10 seconds longer for us to really see them come together, I just, like, who does that, <laughs> really, in, in a movie like this? I, I'm i so impressed every time I see it. And I've seen it, I think, like, six times. And I'm still just like, damn, that ending. is so good.
1: I know. Yeah, every time I see it the same as you, I'm like, I it does... You know, it's not—it's not a typical film that you would think you would expect go into, even get you know three quarters of the way through, and expect that you're going to have like a a little cry at the end of it, and go, oh, <laughs> I feel like I've been hugged by this movie, even yeah. though. But it it does. I think it's just, um, you know, like what you said there. I think that's so relevant. Is it's the film? The entire film is kind of about you know, good people doing bad things or making mistakes and i think that's what makes it so relatable and 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 real is that you know i mean i'm not saying that i um you know thought about the things pauline does in the film or even had any interest but you know i think you can be a good person and have you know dark thoughts or make mm-hmm. bad mistakes do bad things and that doesn't necessarily immediately make you an awful person i think that's exactly you know what we get through the whole of excision is pauline is a good person she has some bad thoughts she does some awful things very similar to her mother you know her mother Is necessarily you know a good a good person, but makes some bad decisions, acts in some bad ways, and I and I feel like that hug is you know almost Pauline accepting she's very much like her mother, and as much as she doesn't want to be, and her mother also Uh kind of accepting that pauline is you know that is her daughter she made that that is part of of her and i think that's why it's so powerful because it's like they both you know know they're made of of the same dna and they're not awful people they've just they've just done some really awful things both of them and it's you know it's kind of like comfort together it's yeah it's 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 a phenomenal ending like really really phenomenal ending
0: I love how you pointed out the similarities between them because they are so different as people. Mm. They have their different tastes. They have their different views on life. However, Pauline is the most like their mom. Yeah. The thing they share the most is this. The word stubborn comes to mind, but it's just because it's a quick, easy word. But it's that really strong focus on... I guess structuring and control and making sure that life functions as it needs to to be and and they they have a tunnel vision that that, that that's the thing that feels very genetic between the two. Mm. If Pauline being tunnel visioned about her wants and needs, you have her mother feeling the same about her wants and needs and they start clashing against each other because of it. But there's never any loss of love even though the mother does say st- something out to that effect, but I will say who doesn't say things out of sheer mental stress, basically? I'm just like, I just want this to be over. I'd rather be dead. Because <laughs> you're just really <laughs> thinking, like, at that moment, it's probably true that you would rather not exist than go through what you're going through at that moment. But it's temporary, of course. You have Grace, who just enjoys the things that their mom teaches them. She is into all of the the makeup and getting boys and and being social and she's learned how to kind of use it in high school and and become very popular but pauline like her mother is more of a trailblazer (laughs) (laughs) and, and tries to you know be in control of her own life and somewhat the the world around her and the exploration of that i think is what makes it this really just special film in the kind of genre it is like i don't are you familiar with the tv series daria no, no, I'm not. So there's a cartoon series from MTV back in like 1998.
1: She was oh no, the one with the glasses, green yeah, jacket. Yeah, that's her. yes, I do know her. Very, she was very moody and kind yes. of different to all the other girls. Yes, I know exactly. the one.
0: The relationship she has with her family and what they explore throughout her whole high school years in the series is very reminiscent of this film. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of inspiration there. Not to say that Pauline is anything like Daria, other than being a black sheep who is just kind of too smart for everybody around her. More what I mean is you have that suburbia. You can feel in the film that these are people with new money, that they're just really like, we we could lose this at any moment. and Don't you fuck this up mm. for me. and that's exactly what daria is because they started really poor and they start the series up in a really nice house in somewhere and i don't say where it is but i think it's somewhere in california and their whole family dynamic is the same you have daria's sister is the really prim and proper vapid one who is just the the ditzy girl valley girl yeah And she gets along with everybody. She speaks exactly like their mother, has the same cadence of speaking, dresses in the same very superficial ways. Their mom's a lawyer, and she is very much a woman who clearly had to work her ass off to be respected in anything that she ever did. So she's very controlling. She's very like, just listen to me. Why doesn't nobody listen to me? (laughs) (laughs) If you did it the first time, it would have been done right. And then you have the dad, who's just like Bob, who's like, what? I I am I at the dinner table? Like he's sometimes <laughs> he didn't know he left work today. And of course you have Daria who's just like, I just want to exist without any of your needs and your rules. I just want to go to my bedroom, think about things, talk to my friends, and do whatever. This whole movie makes me feel like it was like an adaptation of Daria turned into a really sinister twist there at the end. To show what love and obsession can actually create if you aren't actually taught in a healthy manner what those things actually mean and that's what I always get out of it at the very least is that Pauline's just not taught what love actually is curious to your thoughts on that
1: no I think completely right I think you know I think as a teenager like it's such a such a difficult time to understand you know love and relationships and sex and all of those things and I think um, you know especially as a teenage girl like there's a lot of pressure to be a certain way to do certain things you know it's it's a very kind of complicated time and I think if you haven't got the the right tools or the right people around you that can teach you what it means to love a person it can go very very wrong and i think you know like you said talking about kind of like suburbia it's it's almost you know uh, the things that don't really matter like mm-hmm. you know vanity and what you look like and how you know how clean your house is and how well maintained the shrubs are outside all of those things that don't really matter when you live in such a an appearance an aesthetic led world or place like suburbia you kind of lose sight of the importance of of the things that you might actually need to teach your children. And I think, you know, with uh, Pauline, absolutely. Like, Like, she has not got anyone that's kind of going to her, this is right and wrong. You know, the fact that she asked the question about can you get an STD from a dead body it clearly shows from that I mean obviously it's a completely messed up question to very ask specific. <laughs> but I think it's it's a good example of the fact that she's clearly not had a very good sex education and she's trying to right find out herself by asking these questions which someone goes like you know everyone's like why the fuck would you ask that but if you had no idea that might seem to you like quite a normal question to ask and it doesn't necessarily mean you want to have sex with a dead body it might just mean you're you know you're genuinely curious about if uh, a dead body could contain or hold on to an std you know in a way and i think you know her interaction with um, the boy that she has sex with, I can't remember his his name, um, Adam,
0: is it? I think Open it's up. Adam. It is Adam, yes.
1: Yeah, the way she goes around that shows that she has no concept of relationships and love in the fact that she's so pragmatic and process-driven, like, yeah. I'm a virgin, I want to lose my virginity, so... I'm going to find a boy and I'm going to say to him, have sex with me. And, you know, it's all very kind of, it's not at all how an encounter, your first encounter or even your third, fourth with a boy, with a girl, with whoever would go. It's devoid of emotion. It's she's goal driven. It's I need to lose my virginity. So here's how to do it. It is almost like, you know, surgery. It's very, this is what we need to achieve, here's the steps to achieve it, let's just get it done, which clearly shows she has no concept or understanding of, you know, relationships and love because she hasn't been taught that. And I think, you know, when you look at the relationship between the mum and the dad, they don't really seem to have that connection there so perhaps she's never seen it and that's why she's going around it and that's why you know i think her fantasies of her interest in surgery and and the human anatomy combines with her sexual interest as well because i don't think she understands how you would separate the two of them and it becomes this you know orgasmic blood slathered uh, sex dream fantasies which I think even for Pauline she's a bit like what what the fuck is going on there
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do like that with the first visions that we get the first dreams I think the first time she wakes up she's like well okay then (laughs) literally yeah Yeah. so okay well i guess i gotta go to school now and not tell anybody (laughs) about that (laughs) and then she starts to indulge in it more because it's her private space and her private time she gets to actually just think and feel what she's feeling and it is all based on confusion i love how you're pointing out this connection between her interest in anatomy and then how it kind of factors into her sex drive because she has no clear understanding of what even contributes to arousal or love or anything like that. I can even imagine that their parents have even had conversations near them or in front of them that were that, you know, structured. That maybe it's like, so, you know, um, when did you know you wanted to have a child? You know how kids automatically tend to have that romantic feeling and idea about life? So we ask Mm. the questions like, there must be an amazing story about why I was born. And usually it's it's fine. Like, oh, just, you know, sometimes it's very underwhelming. Like, I don't know. I just wanted kids. (laughs) But in the case of her mom, I can imagine her being like, well, we always said that when we got together, we were going to be together for five years. We were going to have two kids. We're going to move into this area and then we were going to be happy. Like, okay, you just planned it out like a wedding. okay? And I think that's the example that Pauline had was you need to make like this biographical structure for your life. So when it came to her virginity, it's like, everybody has a good story, so mine is going to be that guy on my period, boom, going to make it happen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She doesn't seem to have that, you know, concept that it's, it's... you know, these things happen or they're kind of, you know, born out of emotion and connection because mm-hmm. I don't think she has that with, with her family and I don't think she sees that. And yeah, it's all just, it to me, it all just feels, you know, and it's, again, it's so similar to to her mother, like you just said there. It's all kind of like process driven and, and what you should do, you know, to, to Pauline, it's like, well, you know, the next logical thing is I have to lose my virginity, so... I'm going to go and do that. It's not a, well, it will happen when it happens. You know, I might fall in love or it might just be, you know, I meet someone. We end up tumbling into bed together. It's very much like, well, no, this is the the projection of life. These are the certain milestones that I have to hit because I'm in life and society expects me to lose my virginity, then one day get married, then one day have children. So she she approaches it. As society kind of projects it in a way that we have we have to do these things to fit in. So yeah, she goes right. I'm going to lose my virginity then. It's not like she even really wants to. I'm not even sure in the film she necessarily wants to. I think it's just a well, that's the, that's the next step, isn't it? Lose my virginity and I'm on the right path. <laughs>
0: Plus with the feeling of being in that oppressive household, if she loses her virginity, mm. she's one step closer to being a woman and she can get get the fuck out of here and, and, and be her own self. I also got the feeling from her that she acts as if she's not phased by the same sorts of insecurities that everybody around her has. But I think it's because it's been weaponized against her for so long. You know, when you have very oddball interests that are very singular And you ask those questions like, you know, can you get an STD from a dead body? And people just laugh at you and shame you for that. You kind of just guard yourself and don't really share your thoughts with people anymore. But then you're also told you should be more like me. Well, is she not being a good daughter by enacting everything based on her insecurities? But she's also blocking out the fact that she's insecure because she just won't say it. And so then for her, it's like, oh, no, I chose to do this. I am in control. My mother would be very proud of me. I am very in control of this. It's my decision. And you can tell it's my decision because look, I made a manual (laughs) kind of like that. (laughs) There's an itinerary. Everything is exactly as I planned it. So it's not that I am doing this because everybody else is, but kind of right. You know, it's her sister and all the other people at school. And they're saying you couldn't lose your virginity. Nobody would touch you. And she's like, I'm also very intelligent. I know boys. So I know that I don't really need to try as hard as all of you are, but they're looking for mates and she's just looking for somebody to lose virginity to. So, yeah, the lack of just mother-daughter discussions or even father-daughter discussions, parent-to-child life learning discussions, she's just able to look at it on the surface and then say, I'm not insecure. I'm an adult. I'm very, very mature and uh, you can't tell me I'm insecure. Although I am going to get plastic surgery to change the way my belly button looks. <laughs> Although I do want to pray to God, even though I, I don't believe in God. You know, I hate this pre, uh, priest in this church, but uh, God is the only one I have to talk to. So I guess that's, the, you do that, right? So I guess I'll pray. So you still get caught up in doing the things that everybody tells you to do. And you don't understand a damn thing <laughs> about how any of it works. It's like being told that we we only listen to radio in this house, but you have to build your own. Okay? How do I do that? They're like, I don't know, there's some parts in the shed. <laughs> and you make yeah. a toaster, you know. <laughs>
1: absolutely. And yeah, and I mean, I think that's I think that's absolutely, you know, completely right. Like Paul, Pauline has no she doesn't really have any clue and, you know, we mentioned this right at the beginning, but she she doesn't really have any clue and she thinks she's She thinks she is an adult, and like you said, by hiding her insecurities, she feels like it will all go away because she's in control, Mm -hmm. so what could go wrong? But I think that's, again, going back to that, you know, ending kind of sequence, I think it's the first time throughout, you know, at the very end throughout the film where you actually see the look in Paulie's eye when she goes, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing, and I do need my mum to look after me, holy shit. Like it's literally, and that is why her mum goes, Oh, and her mum, yeah, does the same, goes, I have not really looked after you properly here, have I? And I think that's what's so interesting is, you know, the whole way through, Pauline does seem like this strong, assured, you know, knows who she is. But then at the very ending, she kind of goes, Actually, i'm not I'm not all right, and what I'm doing is mm-hmm. not okay, I'm quite lost, and that's and that's being you know that's adolescence that's coming of age, as we see in so many coming of age horror films, y- you know you think you know what you're doing, you think you're on top of it, you're in control, but actually, at that age, as you're discovering yourself, you've got no idea what the fuck is going on any point and you know poor pauline
0: is she's she's just like a little lost soul really very much so and she's only basically in a world of rules other people's rules and the rules are never explained it's just a don't ask questions just do what you're told I, i have been raised in an environment like that not my 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 mother wasn't that way at all but uh my dad had a tendency to try that with me uh they were divorced when i was very young so i've lived with each of them alone yeah. But it's mainly the people in my environment, you know. Schools, churches, the uh I don't know, random adults when you're at the grocery store who just kinda of tell you, Well, this is not allowed. This is not the way we behave. This is not normal. And when you ask why, they just tell you to shut the hell up. Yeah. Because they don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> a lot of the time. Probably because the answer and coming from the south of the US Usually the answer is, uh, well, that's what my mama t- told me. <laughs> so we just have generational information. And some of it is based off of very wise uh, you know, life lessons. But when you do get someone who has a very difficult life and they get a kid and they're just like, oh, fuck, what am I doing? They fail to <laughs> pass on the important parts, which is the why. And then yeah, you can end up with a Pauline, basically someone who could have been like president of the united states if she had been empowered to the point of just like i'm gonna clean all of this up and fix things for people because you see that drive in her constantly she's gonna fix her sister she's gonna make sure that that girl at cotillion didn't feel left out she tries to talk to the girl across the street who's uh, jump roping oh she's lonely like me maybe she wants to have a friend the girls that leave me alone she misreads these things because she has no frame of reference for what's appropriate and what isn't. She's just told, stop it. Yeah. I hate it. Ugh, it's frustrating. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, it's that it's it's that rebellion, isn't it? I mean, I I know in psychology they say if, if someone puts a big red button in front of you and says don't press that, what, what do you want to do? You just want to press the big red button, don't you? Yeah. I think, and especially as a teenager, I mean, you know, every time someone said to me like don't do that, I was like, well, I'm I'm going to do the exact opposite because what <laughs> like without a like without reasoning, and I I feel like you know, as a as a teen, like you were saying, there's often these rules implied on. A us, but there's no reasoning behind why so we kind of test it you know we're learning about the world so you want to know your boundaries i mean i know at school like um my school was very 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 strict in terms of you know uh how you had to look how you had to mm. dress i mean mm-hmm. socks had to be black socks of a certain length skirt wow. had to be below your knees hair boys couldn't have it shorter than a certain you know it was very very strict like that so me being me I was discovering discovering individuality you know I've got my stripy socks on I put a bit of eyeliner on I'd just gotten a a tunnel in my ear you know discovered piercings dyed my hair all of that you know and I got put into self-isolation for a month for having pink hair and for me I was like but but why you know that was my question I was like why and the reasoning was just well that's just the way it is and I think you know as a teen you go well I'm gonna question that because that doesn't doesn't quite make sense and I think you know with Pauline she's she could have been you know an amazing surgeon but you know like you said everyone keeps trying to oppress her and put her into these rules and what she should be and what she shouldn't be and unfortunately you know it just leads her down this path where she pushes that boundary and pushes that boundary to a point of of no return, where all she really needed was probably a little bit of nurturing, a couple more of those mum hugs, and you never know, she might have been the world's best surgeon.
0: For sure. I mean, if you would just temper her a little bit and say, I understand that you have this desire to do it right now, but part of being a professional is knowing the ins and the outs of it, because you could kill her. You could do this, You, you know, like really... Just the subtleties of, I will help you achieve your goal, but it's harder than you might think it is right now. Yeah. And I will support you through the difficult times. But let's just be patient and do it one step at a time because you don't just get to do what you want. I think a, the best example in the film of how people failed to teach her anything is her teacher, the math teacher. <laughs> yeah. Which I, oh, Malcolm McDowell on this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, Such a good little good little casting yes. again.
0: <laughs> he had some catharsis with the scene, you could tell. Yeah. Um, just like your little shit. Uh, <laughs> but he is the only one to even attempt to provide an answer to the question why. And it's a bullshit answer. He says, well, you know, you need a lot of math to be a surgeon. If you're going to be in a situation where you are... You know, somebody's life is on the line, you have to be able to make decisions quickly. What the hell are you talking about? Like, what does that have to do with me learning math for surgery? If you had told her something along the lines of, you need to know how, you need to be able to measure things, you need to know exact measurements for cutting, you need to know how much chemical you need to use for anesthesia, whatever. You're going to work with a team. So you need to be a good team player know your whole process, and there's lots of math involved. So, actually, it would be very good of you to learn this a little bit more, and I would love to teach it to you so you can be a surgeon. That's a much better answer than, like, wow, you little shit. Well, you know, if you can't do math quick, how can you do surgery quick? What an answer. What It's like, ah, people do this all the time. That's very realistic. And I like when a movie like this decides to go that extra step Instead of just showing that you know, you're you a little cranky and miserable. It's like, what if you do this to the wrong person? And then, and then we get it <laughs> there at the end of the film. One thing I'd like to jump into. I, I think that one aspect of the beautiful for me in this film comes from Pauline's love of grace. And yeah. the pain that she feels knowing that her sister is probably going to die before she's even out of high school. And that makes me want to come back to the quote, very long quote, not going to read it all out again, but I got this quote from a book called On Beauty and Being Just by Elaine Scarry. The purpose of the book is to, for one, reinvigorate academia into looking at beauty as a topic of discussion that has merit and value. I liked how you brought up earlier when we we're talking about suburbia, if mm-hmm. you have an aesthetics driven world, you kind of lose sight of the point of life, right? Yeah. So aesthetics are often considered then to be very dangerous in academic discussions since we're talking mostly about cultural theory and sociology and you know racial studies and, and feminism and, and all this. And aesthetics can tend to get in the way. I'm more of the mindset that the individual misreading it <laughs> tends to get in the way because <laughs> I think this podcast has slowly proven from all of the discussions I've had that aesthetics can lead to very, strong observations about human interaction and empathy and love and and all all kinds of stuff so her point is how beauty is a great gateway to creating more just responses instead of allowing standards of beauty to lead us and for us to put others in a box because they're quote unquote not beautiful therefore they're inferior and high and you're holding up all the people who are considered beautiful Well, that's a failure on the individual, not on beauty. Beautiful people are ugly people, depending on who they are on the inside and and what they do and what they feel. Mm. But that's the stuff that's hard for us to talk about, right? That's where all of our problems are at the moment. You know, try to tell a politician what a good person does and see how quickly they're going to find some superficial, nonsensical thing to talk about that's easier to address, because, I mean, can you argue around it? <laughs> right and wrong is really not that hard. Uh, so, and in this case, I felt that the quote that she's talking about here, she's really talking about the sensation of beauty and what mm-hmm. it does to us, how it really just oh, it grasps you. And it's such a powerful, intense sensation that we almost become obsessed with the beautiful object and it also just sticks in the mind and creates this urgency to how she put it she says um it it does all of this with a kind of urgency as though one's life depended on it it's really the singular goal in that moment is to achieve this which has a lot of you know history behind it with discourse But specifically for this quote, I felt that it applied nicely because I started thinking about the relationship between Pauline and Grace and Pauline's feelings about making sure that her sister was safe. Because the way she looks at her sister is the same way her mother looks at her sister. I love that they didn't take the angle of the sister is spoiled and Pauline is the mousy one that isn't loved as much. It's in there. But Pauline never seems to care about that. She knows that's superficial. She's too mature. She knows that that's just what people do. And she never, ever projects that onto Grace. She is so good at looking somebody dead in the eye saying, you don't treat me that way. Which is exactly what you should do. You you need to throw that in the face of the person who's the, the aggressor, the person who's doing it. Not to the person who's getting the benefit of it Unless they're actually weaponizing it or, you know, in on putting you down. Grace never is. She supports Pauline constantly. Their bond is so pure and wonderful. And for me, I feel that that's where that obsession comes from. She sees her as such a pure, beautiful person. So the knowledge that the only thing that she has is a major flaw is the fact that her lungs don't work. It just makes her go mad. It's kind of a mad scientist film in a way. And it's usually what you see in these movies as well these stories the the mad scientist is driven insane by the pursuit of perfection and beauty yeah arrogance pauline has a bit of arrogance too but I, i just wanted to know your thoughts on this uh reading of mine
1: no i completely agree i mean i think um grace and pauline's relationship as you said it's it's such a it's so pure and it, it almost does kind of embody what beauty means you know the way that Pauline gazes upon graces as if she's you know almost kind of like this laboratory made dull of perfection like there is no flaw in grace when Pauline looks at her like she sees her like you said the only the only flaw that she has is is her lungs not working and she wants to you know she wants to solve that for her she wants to to put her back into you know kind of factory settings which is is sheer perfection and i think you know for her her pauline's life does depend on it you know everyone's life depends on it grace is this enigma in in her life this and i think it's you know i think it's partly uh, she looks at her as kind of aspiration everything she might want to be but i think she also wants to protect The beauty that she has and she wants to kind of encompass it and I think you know that's the thing about beauty isn't it when any of us see something that we we regard as beautiful you have this instinct to to look after it to protect it you know if you were Mm -hmm. out walking and you saw the most beautiful butterfly what would you do if you saw something trying to catch it You'd, you'd want to make sure it's it's safe and away from it. You don't want to destroy beauty. It's like art. It's like culture. You know, they're, they're things to be gazed upon, to be kept in a, you know, you think of a a painting in a museum. You can't touch it. You can't go near it. It is perfection. It is, you know, kept to only wonder about and look at and imagine how amazing it is and, you know, be in awe of it. And that's that's how Pauline looks at, at grace she is almost you know something to be put in the display case and kept perfect forever and I think you know to Pauline the fact that she's not going to be perfect forever because you know due to one fault which is her lungs she's going to be ripped away from the world this one true beautiful pure innocent thing is going to be completely taken away from the world Pauline can't can't fathom that she can't handle that and I think you know I think that actually talks a lot to us as humans and our processing of of kind of grief and losing people in life is that it's we see it as, you know, we know those people as 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 beauty, as beautiful people. And this is not talking about aesthetics. This is talking about, you know, the souls of these people. They're something that we are in awe of. And I think, you know, the thought of of beauty being ripped and taken away from the world is it's, it's unimaginable. You know, it is like the worst thing that could ever happen to us, to the world. So of course you would do everything possible to, to keep it intact and as it is. And I think, you know, that's essentially all Pauline is doing. She just wants to protect what she sees as the most kind of beautiful thing that has ever graced her presence, excuse the pun, there which was totally <laughs> unintentional, but <laughs> I was like, oh that's a good one. <laughs> but, but it is, you know, for her, she's she's never seen anything else. And like you said, you know, the way Grace treats Pauline She actually kind of, uh, what I like about Grace in, you know, reverse is Grace almost treats Pauline in the same way. I think she sees the beauty of Pauline as who she is and, you know, also absolutely adores Pauline for the beauty that she has, even if it's Mm -hmm. not, you know, stereotypical and what you would expect she sees Pauline for who she is and I think, you know, as you said, that that relationship is it is so beautiful to see on screen. I don't I don't think you often get many uh relationships that feel so kind of overwhelming, but in like a genuinely heartwarming sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Heartwarming is a perfect descriptor for it. It's so wholesome to watch. Yeah. Just that scene of them sitting out in the front yard and Pauline's brushing Grace's hair. She really dotes on her and treats her like this little porcelain doll because she's so sick. But Grace, at the same time, being the younger sister is really interesting how she is trying to teach Pauline about the world because she's more adept at understanding other people and working and navigating through them. So they really try to help each other out. And I love that they don't, even if they reject the help, they don't resent each other for it. It's just a... I really like that you're looking out for me kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, even if you have that pride where you're like, I don't, I don't really, I don't need your help, but thank you. <laughs> I, I, like they, they do that a lot with them and there's no fighting between the two of them. I love that. There's not a single moment where they have a conflict about something stupid. The only conflict you get is when Pauline's mental state just kind of breaks because she gets into this fit of seeing her as this beautiful object that needs to be preserved. And I guess that's where the, the movie becomes so interesting to me because the way they explore Pauline, all of that negativity, as we've already touched upon, comes from her mother. That's this shared personality that they have. And that lack of structuring and, well, not structuring, that lack of care in how she was raised and understanding the world leads her first to approach grace as i'm gonna save you i'm gonna preserve the beautiful thing but she does have enough pride and enjoys the empowerment of i'm doing something on my own and nobody's telling me i can't do it i'm, I'm taking the bull by the horns here and i have good ideas that she gets caught up in the beauty of her work like an artist mm. and that's where that big powerful ending comes from as well because That's not Pauline, really. When we're seeing at the end, she's just delusional there and blocking out the fact that she has destroyed the beautiful object. Instead, she is thinking she's the beautiful object. For once, Pauline gets to be the beautiful object because she did it. See, I can do it. And the moment her mother hugs her, she's like, oh, oh, no, I'm far, far from beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all on that day. Even though it comes from this really, really kind place, um, I like that. That's your hubris, and I, I like when a film decides to explore just a very subtle flaw in somebody, and so show, show how devastating that can be if it's left without any guidance, really.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, it's, it's. It, I guess it also kind of shows that you know, ob- obsession. With beauty, regardless Mm -hmm. of you know whatever context the beauty is in, you know, I think it shows that the obsession with it. We can go from, I mean, I think of it. It it reminds me a lot of a book I read called uh, The Collector by John Mm -hmm. Fowles, where you know it's written from the point of a serial killer who is so obsessed with the beauty of this girl that he's watched for months and months and months, that he he has to collect her. He needs her, needs to have it to keep her, to have that beauty because he's so obsessed with it. Much like Pauline needs to keep grace because it's, you know, this this object of sheer beauty that you you cannot let Go and it's you know protection and, and in the book he does you know very similarly keeps this girl uh, and spoilers for the book if you haven't read it but he <laughs> he keeps this this girl in the basement you know and it, and it culminates in him killing her you know he he destroys the beauty and once he's done it he kind of you know realizes he got so obsessed with having that beauty and and protect what what they believe is protecting the beauty and preserving that beauty is that actually they become the destroyer of the beauty because the obsession is is too severe it goes beyond and it's exactly the same with Pauline you know it's just so, she's so I guess she's so almost in love with with grace as a as an object of beauty that she gets caught up in that and without the you know the support and help she needs as as a human like you said her her flaw of that obsession for for grace spirals out of control and she does the unthinkable and destroys what she was essentially trying to protect and I think you know it even kind of goes. Back towards, uh, you know, talking about the mother and parenthood is that you create these children, these beings, and you want to do everything to keep them perfect and pure and, you know, as as you think they should be, that you protect them so much and you become so obsessed with that protection that you end up destroying them, as her mother does, you know, she's so obsessed with Pauline being what she thinks Pauline needs to be and the beauty of Pauline that she ends up, you know, essentially kind of tying in and and putting it back into her her destruction you know she's part of that and i think it's you know obsession with beauty clearly can be a a dangerous thing even if it comes from what is essentially a, a good place
0: i love this reading you have with the with the mother and Pauline on that because i hadn't even thought of it but you're right how It just makes me think immediately how although we see Pauline's thoughts and we see her alone a lot, most of her actions comes out of rebellion, comes Mm -hmm. out of this pushback against what people want from her. So she just keeps drifting farther into what's singularly me, what is only me and nobody has given this to me. But we don't know who she was when she was a younger child. We don't know anything about her base personality basically and it's just clear that her mother didn't foster any of that and just tried to like force her to not be who she was in the attempt to make her a person that would be respected in society for some reason that's a very important deal like i said trauma also pushes us into wanting to fix those sorts of things and yeah, she kind of creates this monster. It's probably why she responds the way she does. She is accepting responsibility for her actions because yeah. she made Pauline go to these lengths. She heard Pauline say she was going to do these things, and she just heard a teenager saying stupid teenage shit of idealization of oh, "I'm going to be a great surgeon. I'm going to save Grace. Mark my words. Uh, you, you know, I, I I'm really fucked up. You should put me in a." with a real psychiatrist, not a guy from the church, and she's like, okay, Pauline, yeah, yeah." you're just rebelling all the time. When the rebellion comes into play, unfortunately in the more important parts of just care and love and consideration and thinking before you do, you know, impulse, but everything else is just her crying out and telling you exactly what's on her mind and you're not listening to it. Really interesting, really interesting reading that you've... uh, pinpointed there between the two. I also love that you mentioned the word uh, an object of beauty with grace. Cause while you were saying that I was already thinking <laughs> this movie is such a good commentary on objectification. Yes. Yeah. Throughout the entire film, the way young girls are objectified. They do the typical thing where they show girls in the locker room, but in this case, they're all pretty already dressed. And yeah. I loved that, that they're like, you just see girls here at the gym and They don't do that weird skeezy thing that a lot of movies would do where they're like, and now we're in the locker room for no reason other than like, it's a private space that the scene makes sense to be in the locker room. Like, but why does it always have to show the reality of what's going on in the locker room? Why can't it, you know, be just the point of a locker room, which is you get in your gym clothes. (laughs) Yeah. So I was really happy they did that.
1: Well, and even in, um, you know, uh, Pauline's fantasy sequences, she's... You know she's probably the most dressed i mean she's in a few of them she's got you know not not loads on, but in most of those scenes she's mm-hmm. actually got most of the clothes on, and it's the the men in her fantasies that are naked crawling around they are mm-hmm. you know the subject of objectification in her in her dreams, and I think that's really. In, like you said about the locker scene, that's a very interesting choice because, you know, to be looking at a film that is, you know, looking at fantasy sequences from a female perspective of sex and they don't go down the route of going right let's just get her completely naked and show you know her naked all the time it's quite the opposite you know some of the some of the outfits she wears in that she's completely covered you know you can barely even see an arm she's you know full-length gown or you know she's got those white kind of overalls on she wears a lot of amazing costumes i've got to say that amazing (laughs) but like they don't objectify women in this film you don't see women as the object of of gaze at all if anything men are you know the way that pauline uses adam for sex he doesn't use her she mm-hmm. uses him. She is, and she's the one in control in that situation. You know, she's also decided she's going to be on her period, which typically, you know, period sex is disgusting. I mean, as a girl, you're told it's kind of like, oh, you're on your period. Oh my god, don't let anyone see your tampon that you know in your bag. Like it's in, it's meant to you feel embarrassed about periods, and it's like you know, ooh, grimy, disgusting. Whereas Pauline kind of goes actively <laughs> goes to Adam first time ever having sex on her period and she was like yeah he's gonna fuck me I'm gonna be on my period I'm also <laughs> gonna make him go down on me and you see he's horrified and she was like and and I love that it's like yeah what why is it disgusting? So I think it's it's a great way that they twist the objectification. Not, mm-hmm. not that I'm saying men should be objectified because absolutely not. But I love the narrative where they've kind of flipped beauty and objectification and the female gaze on its head and gone, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do mm-hmm. it the opposite, and you know, Pauline is is the catalyst for that. She gets to go. No, this is this is what we're going to have. We're going to have, you know, men naked writhing around in blood and getting their heads cut off while I fuck them on my period. And I'm like, yeah, I'm <laughs> right. I'm here for that.
0: <laughs> in in a way, there's this we like is sexualized or sexually driven as this film is. You know, there's a lot of focus on like. Mainly just, like, the female orgasm, basically. You know, she has a lot of orgasmic moments in her fantasies. And as you were pointing out, like, there's no real, like, sexual stuff in it. It's more blood. And there's nudity, but there's usually just people that are around her. More that they are more naked than she is because she is more protected. And she is in control. And they're stripped down. So it's more of an allegory than anything else. And she kind of gets off on power dynamics and... Biology. I don't know. She's got some interesting kinks, and that's also in there too. You know, there's no, there's no kink shaming really to the film, other than people shaming her. But she just explores the stuff because ah, whatever It's not weird. I-, I loved all this stuff, but I loved how it is almost asexual in the sexual parts of it. There's no there's nothing sexy about any of the sex scenes in the None. film, and the most sexy parts of it are the moments when she's just like writhing because she's smearing blood on her face. And it's evocative, of course, you know, it is still a bodily fluid on a woman's face who's, you know, all dolled up and stuff. But it is also that commentary of, like, yeah, you like that? You like her, like, pouring the blood of men on her and getting off on it and stuff? Oh, how comfortable do you feel right now, you know? Uh, and it's it's such a cool thing to do, to take sex out of sex because she has her little pamphlet and her her itinerary. And it's funny enough, like, she doesn't seem to be aroused by having sex at all until she hits her period. And she pulls the tampon out, and she's just, like, huffing it and just kind of, like, having this really strong, like, oh, yeah, it's time kind of response. Like, so, (laughs) she's aroused. She's horny. But she is not at all, like, there is no gaze. She didn't care about Adam. She didn't care about, like, abs. In fact, I love that she kind of, like, very medically analyzes his anatomy and (laughs) without even trying to combat him just says very realistic stuff she's like i guess you're not big enough for the big kind like look it's falling off like (laughs) reality is setting in it's not her i love that she immediately goes like that's okay i still want to have sex with you in fact there are reasons that this is a good thing (laughs) so that you are the perfect candidate (laughs) <laughs> which is just such a <laughs> such a wonderful approach to this and everybody would see that as wrong we're like why if that's how she could stay safe and keep herself protected and have a sex life i think it's awesome you know it, it may not be the most sexy way for the other person but you know if she were ever in a relationship i'm sure they would discuss how to make that work that's communication <laughs> so.
1: exactly and yeah no I, I like you said i absolutely love that they take the you know, they take the sex out of the sex. Like, I think that's—I don't think that's an easy thing to do. Like, and I think you know, a movie like this would typically—I think if you described it to anyone, it would sound like it's a film trying to be very titillating and you know, sexual and mm-hmm. have these scenes in it. But you're right; like, there's nothing sexualized about them at all, even though they are about sex. But they're also about you know, uh, the human. Anatomy and yeah, you see, you know, there are nude bodies around, and there's also you know women in those fantasies. But it's you mm-hmm. know, it's not like she's ever kind of disclosed what she's really into, or that that that's necessarily you know something like you said that's turning her on or making her you know horny or anything. That's not necessarily how it is for her. And I think you know, it does a really good at, job at portraying that and also you know human fantasies that I think everyone's probably had you know thoughts sexual thoughts and then you go oh that was a bit weird wasn't it but (laughs) you know that doesn't necessarily mean you know you want to lie in a bath of blood with naked people you know all around you and then munching on your stomach and all those it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that at all I think it just means you know that these thoughts can be as you said you know asexual thoughts that involve involve you know some kind of sexual element to them but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you're attracted to it's it's a it's such an interesting way to portray it and i think you know the the more i've watched excision the more i've come to see those scenes as something deeper than just you know I think the first time I watched it I went oh she's a bit kinky a bit weird you know (laughs) and then the more I watched it I was like it's not that though it's not quite that because it's not presented like a sex scene at all it's very different which yeah just adds into you know the overall intelligence of this film
0: Mm -hmm. for sure and for me at least the latest viewing that I had with it, it, it kind of reads to me as a, the thing that really seems to arouse her is just this idea of intimacy because it's her blood. It's all the things that you are shamed about as a young woman. She's having fantasies of people like bathing in the blood with her. And as you said, like munching on her skin and being really intimate, but she's, she has to do nothing. They are just accepting her. She is being desired. And she lives in a world where she is repulsive to everybody. And I guess that also ties into those insecurities I was talking about. We never really hear her say them or act upon them in a, I guess, a very stereotypically performed kind of way. But I love seeing it in her fantasies that she's, she's a goddess. And it's just all like she's overseeing everybody just devour each other. And she's in control of all of this destruction, which in her eyes is part of this very intimate accepting type of interaction with each other cuz at the end of the day we are just biological creatures with you know bodily fluids. That's kind of how she sees it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think that it really gets her you know what gets her off is if somebody were to understand that. <laughs> you know, she'd be like you get it. Good. Now yeah. we can be life mates forever. You're my penguin. <laughs> <laughs> Pauline's so wonderful.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> She's she Pauline is my idol, honestly. I want to <laughs> dress as her for Halloween, but I'm worried you know that my friends will be like what is going on but you know this year is going to be the year pauline Do it. that's the that's the costume this year there you
0: Go. i mean <laughs> after everything you've described about yourself from the beginning of our conversation i would say that worrying about what your friends think about an idea you have is far <laughs> for the course and it's not something you should really be concerned about
1: <laughs> if pauline's allowed to embrace it then you know <laughs> i just uh, i won't i just won't touch you know any surgical tools
0: yeah yeah make sure those are rubber keep keep yourself safe and everybody else well um i mean there are a lot of other things that we didn't really get into but that's what i also love about this podcast is it's a very specific focus and yet you see how rich and deep we can get into it but you know we didn't get into the whole john waters of it all and camp and and the way uh it's it's a really interesting family comedy throughout the whole thing and then it's just because you have those little inserts that it really reminds you of, oh, oh, yeah, right, okay, I got too comfortable thinking about this as a kind of parody of American Beauty that, uh, forgot this is a dark-ass movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it keeps you grounded that, uh, remember, this movie's not going to end well. It kind of keeps telling you this movie's not going to end the way you want it to. But um, I think we've covered pretty, a pretty good base for beauty on excision i don't know if there are any other uh topics that you had written down that you really want to discuss before we wrap up no
1: i mean i think it's a film where we could probably do its own (laughs) spin-off podcast at this point to be honest i think it feels like it yeah i think i I just hope that anyone that hasn't seen it gives it a chance because it's certainly a film that is underrated and probably i don't think i know that many people that have really (laughs) seen it and and got into it and appreciated it for for the beauty that it holds so hopefully you know we can open the eyes um and the flesh (laughs) to lots of your listeners to excision because i do think it's 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 a stunning movie in many many ways
0: it really is and one quick question then before we wrap up since you are the queen of extreme horror and for anybody who's heard <laughs> the intro and stuff and doesn't know you and, and now hearing about this movie, maybe they're a little concerned about what they're, you know, <laughs> kind of getting themselves into. Would you classify this into that category of extreme horror?
1: Um It there's elements. There's certainly mm-hmm. elements, but I would say I would say no. I think if anything, it's probably more body horror. Um right. but but I think, you know, it's not as it's not as taboo as most extreme horror films. I think it's very gory, but I think the way it presents itself, you know, is no August Underground, let's God. put it that way. <laughs> it's it's certainly more – it's a much more sophisticated movie and one that I think even if you are a little bit, ooh, about, you know, the, the more kind of disturbing films, I think there's a, a, a lot in here, as you said, like family comedy elements to it that will – guide you through without you getting too weirded out but there is, there is gore if you don't like gore then yeah <laughs> but no I, I probably wouldn't say it's necessarily particularly extreme I think it verges there but definitely more body horror for me
0: Right. Yeah, I I would also feel that if anybody's interested in extreme horror, but they're like, I don't know, all these titles that you're saying sound like (laughs) the most horrifying thing. uh, They are. (laughs) I was going to say they are titled for a reason. Um, But in this case, it's a great gateway into that. So if you want to watch something that is Mm. very watchable, like I said, easy breezy pace, but you still want to get your horror jollies out of it and feel that devastated shotgun blast at the end of it in your (laughs) stomach, Excision is a good kind of test to see if you can step your, you know, dip your toes into the waters of things like martyrs and stuff right afterwards. Cause that's where it went for me too. It's like, I went accession and then I think i watched martyrs like the next week or something. I was like, Oh dear, this was a, an upgrade. Uh, <laughs> but I did feel similar emotions when watching the films, you know uh, this one it, it, it's so just to make it clear to everybody, it's not an easy watch, especially by the end of it. <laughs> It's just easy to watch, if you get what I'm saying. It's just more that don't expect to uh, have your popcorn on and enjoy all the gore. This gore is not here for your enjoyment. It's here for a point, and I think that it tells its point quite beautifully. Agreed. Well... Then I think I can wrap things up. So this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including The Scream Teens, but hosted by Gory Corey and Lena, The Road to Nowhere, hosted by Arsihara, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. If you are interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or horror in general, You can follow me on Twitter, which is at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, shockaholic.org. Org For all kinds of different uh, goodies on horror. Uh, but, dear listeners, I want to know what are your thoughts on Excision? If you've seen it and you know it pretty well, I really want to hear from you on Twitter at Beauty Pod or email me beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com. If you tell me what you're feeling, I will always be sure to shout you out on Twitter. And for even more beauty in your day, be sure to check out our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are also named Beauty Horror Pod. So, Beauty of Horror are on any of those platforms. You will find us. Do not worry. But I want to thank you again, Zoe. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Finally, we got to talk about it. And finally, I get to talk about Excision, too, because I I have to admit that when I started the podcast, it was one of the first movies that came to mind that I really wanted to talk about. (laughs) So when you brought it up, it's like, oh, and just, yes, I felt that you were the perfect person to discuss this movie with as well. Um, Where can everyone find you? And are there any things that you'd like to plug or specifically throw out there from your socials?
1: Well, firstly, thank you again for having me because I've never actually spoken to anyone about excision. Wow. So I, and it's also one of my, like absolute favorite. So, I'm so glad someone else shares that love and we got to talk about it um, in so much depth. So, thank you for that, Chandler, because I very much enjoyed that conversation. Um, In terms of people finding me, me personally, I am Zobo with a shotgun on pretty much any social media that Mm. exists because I love social media. I'm a bit of a social media whore to put it that way. Um, And then the other places, of course, check out Ghouls Magazine. Um, In terms of plugs... I'm not going to plug any of my stuff because I'm always just chatting bullshit over on Twitter, which, (laughs) you know, if you like drunk tweets and and random things, that's that's the place to go. But do check out Ghouls magazine because we've got loads of amazing articles up there. We've got um, recently published a curated article by Liz Bishop on our top uh, 10 horror movies of 2021, which is from all of the Ghouls gang Um, who contributed to that so that's our collective top 10 not that I necessarily agree with it but that's that's (laughs) alright I didn't get involved in that one that's not my top 10 Um, and then Caitlin Downs also curated again contributions from all of the Ghouls team the movies that we're looking forward to horror movies in 2022 which has got some great ones on there some of which I am also looking forward to some not so much (laughs) but I'm sure Everyone else listening will love that. So do check that out.
0: Excellent. Yes, do check it out. Seriously, you're missing out if you're not reading Ghouls Magazine and interacting with everybody who is on board there. I cannot stress enough the level of talent and just, you know, I hope you're very proud of yourself with what you've managed to put together because it is wonderful. And I'm really excited to hear that you're going to be. Really kicking into next gear here in 2022. I want to see what you've got planned. So all those events, go there, have fun. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>